Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life, so we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at www.christchapelcollege.org and on Instagram at Christ Chapel College. Amen. Praise God. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Um, my name is Ben. I'm one of the young adult pastors. Love that I get to be here and love that I get to uh, preach for you all this morning. We're going to be in Jonah. Uh, we're in a series uh, in the book of Jonah, and we are, uh, man, we are taking small bites out of this book. It is a deep book, and there's a lot there, and we're going to take our time with it. And so we are in chapter one. This is now our third week. Um, this is our third week, and we have gotten in three weeks, we will have gotten through six verses, which is awesome uh, because it's so thick and there's so much here, uh, and I love that. Um, in preparation this last week for this sermon, uh, this is very much a part two of what I got to preach on last week in Jonah 1, uh, verses 3 and 4, um, and, and in preparation for this week, um, it really became real, uh, I became very aware of uh, the reality and this is always true in preaching, but I, I just became very aware in, in prepping for this sermon that, man, I am so inadequate for this sermon. Uh, the sermon that I get to preach to you guys and, and how I get to unpack this text and bring the word of God to you guys, I am so inadequate to do anything of meaning in your lives tonight in any sort of transformative way. And the reality is that's always the truth, right? That's always the truth of anyone who gets to stand on the stage and represent Christ, whether it is through worship, through song, or preaching, or whatever the case is. Man, this is a Jesus thing. This isn't a preacher thing or a music thing. Uh, this is a Jesus thing. And yet this morning was one of those uh, mornings that I, I've really felt um, uh, humbled, but also um, really set free by the fact that um, man, where I'm taking us this morning, I don't have the words for it. Um, we need the Holy Spirit to do what we're talking about, uh, which is always true. Um, but this morning, it, it seems to be even weightier because I see in my own life, my own inability to fix myself, my own ability to free myself uh, and my desperate dependence on Jesus. And so I, my hope is that this will be a little bit of a shorter sermon, and we're going to have a little bit more of an extended time of prayer, just begging for the Lord to do what only he can do on the back end of this. So um, let me set up the context here in Jonah 1. In Jonah 1 so far, we have seen that Jonah is called, right? He's called to go to Nineveh, which is uh, basically a a whole city full of bad guys, right? They hate the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. Uh, they have persecuted them, done horrible things. God goes to Jonah as his prophet and says, I want you to go to those people and I want you to proclaim who I am and call them out in their sin. Jonah gets that message loud and clear from God and goes the exact opposite direction and runs from that, runs from obedience from the Lord, runs from the presence of God. Jonah runs then God brings this storm we saw last week as a consequence for his running. He gets on a boat and sails heading to Tarshish as far as he can get from where he's called to be. And God, as a consequence of his running, brings this massive storm to the boat. And that's where we pick up in, verses, uh, in verse 5 in chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 5 and 6 to you. <clears throat> then the mariners who were there with Jonah, then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God, 
And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Here's what's happening in these two verses in Jonah chapter 1. What's happening is a massive, massive, wicked storm has, has entered the scene, right? This is a God-sized storm, and it is wrecking shop on this boat. Uh, the verses earlier says that it's going to tear the boat apart. It is a, a disproportionately scary storm. And how do I know that? I know that because here we have sailors who are professional water people, right? They live their lives on the water, sailing, doing life, navigating storms, and they are freaking out. They have completely lost their ish. They are throwing cargo overboard. They are crying out to their gods, polytheistic, whatever they've got, whatever gods, whatever kind of good luck they can get. They are they, they're professional sailors, and they think it's over. They think it's over. This is it. So much so that they go down and they wake up Jonah and they are freaking out. They're losing it. That's the scene. An insane storm. Sailors praying to their multiple gods to try to save them. And where is Jonah? Where is Jonah in the most epic storm ever? Verse 5, he is asleep in the basement of the ship. The most epic storm that these grown men have ever probably experienced in their life, and Jonah is asleep in the basement of a ship. A, a storm that Jonah, remember, caused, right? He caused the storm with his disobedience. God specifically says, I'm bringing a storm on this ship because of you, because you're running, as a consequence of your running, and he's asleep. These two verses, I think, hold and show us and put a mirror in front of us that I think show us something really, really dangerous in our lives that we're going to camp out on this morning. They show us a character who is called by God, who is plagued and haunted and covered and calloused in apathy. He is apathetic and he is indifferent to his disobedience. There is this dangerous apathy towards the consequences that he has brought on himself, that he's brought on other people around him. Jonah's sin and his disobedience has brought this on, and yet he's asleep in the bottom of the ship, completely indifferent to the destruction he's bringing about to himself and to others. Um, that is convicting for me. Um, that's convicting for me because I think apathy and indifference to our sin is an incredibly dangerous thing in my life. Uh, maybe one of the most destructive things. Here, here's what we've seen so far in these just six verses. We've seen God establish that, that we can be a people who run, right? In the first couple of verses, that we can run from what God calls us. We've seen that there are consequences from running. But here is the real problem. It's not that we run it's not simply that we run from God. It's not simply that there are consequences for us running from God. It's that I am so often indifferent to my sin when I run. I'm so often indifferent to the destruction in my sin. Um, 
Last week, if you were here, I got to share just a little bit of um, just some struggles that I'm having in my marriage, in the way, in my sin and selfishness of how I lead my wife. I'm married to, if y'all haven't met her, Danielle Fuquay. Um, she's unbelievable. She's an incredible, godly woman. You should meet her sometime. Uh, she's great. Unless you're a guy, stay away from her. Don't make eye contact. Uh, but girls, you should meet her. She's great. Um, Right, like my wife's unbelievable, and she partners with me in, in ministry in such sweet ways, and what my job and my role so often is, is kind of this crazy, it doesn't really fit in a box, and uh, she's such a sweet partner. And last week, I got to share, she came to me uh, on Saturday, and just we had this kind of good conversation, and by good conversation, I meant she cried, and I cried, and it was really this grieving moment of realizing, man, my spiritual leadership in my wife's life has some massive holes in it, some massive areas of disobedience and what God's called me to do and how he's called me to lead and love my wife. And yet, honestly, as this selfish sinner, I deprioritize those things. And so my sweet and gracious wife brings that up and we wrestle through this and realize she's right. And that was last Saturday. And what I would love to say is like, man, there was this real like, awareness of my sin and my selfishness. And guys, I just, every morning I pray over her now and Shekinah glory falls in our bedroom. And then I read verses as I walk around the house and I just lead her so spiritually. But honestly, my sin is, is it's still my default setting. And I still become callous to that. And I still catch myself realizing, wait, I'm not serving my wife the way I should. Instead, I'm prioritizing myself or I'm prioritizing other things that the Lord would say, what are you doing? Right, And that's a, that's a sweet thing with my marriage, man. There's all kinds of selfishness and pride and fear of man and, that creep into my life. And it becomes these patterns. And are, there, are there patterns of disobedience in your life, man? You got these things that you circle back around to and you kind of come out of a little bit, and then you come back into, and, and it seems like when you go back into them, maybe those valleys get a little bit deeper because you're a little bit more callous to them. And maybe you come out, and you feel like you get some victory and freedom, and you feel like you're experiencing God's grace, and then you circle back around into it. Man, we have sin. We run. That happens. I think one of the most dangerous things, though, is that we become indifferent to the way we run. I want to answer two questions, and then I just want to spend some time praying, and, and more importantly, letting you pray and do business with the Lord in a way that I won't be able to, to prompt you in. Um, here are the two questions I want, us to, I want to try to ask uh, and, and answer for you guys this morning. They are, why are we indifferent towards our sin, and how do we cure it? Why am I such a fool who continues to return to my sin, why am I indifferent to that? Why do I not grieve over myself? Why is there not more of a response at times and a freedom? Why can I look at my sin and think, ah, it's not that big of a deal? And then how do I cure that? How do I stop that? Um, I'm going I'm to answer why are we indifferent first. Uh, and this is going to build. This is a pathway to how we become indifferent. And uh, I think one of the first ways that I'm going to show you in, in the text that we are indifferent is doubt. We become indifferent to our sin because of our doubt. I don't believe God knows better, right? I, I know that he does. I, I know intellectually that he does, but so often the indifference in my sin and how I can stay in patterns of doing 
what I want to do and not what the Lord wants me to do is because the root issue, there's a root issue in so many of our lives that man, we just have doubt. Do I really believe him? Do I, I doubt that the cost of my sin, right? What God warns me, man, this is going to cost you. Do I, do I really believe that the cost of my sin is really greater than the benefit that I see getting out of it? I'm going to give you a really dumb and shallow illustration, but I think it, I think it illustrates my point. Long John Silver's. You know that restaurant? Anybody know Long John Silver? Okay, yeah. That restaurant is the worst. That is the worst restaurant ever. And if you work at Long John, I love you. Praise God, you're here. Repent, pray afterwards. Just kidding. Um, if your dad owns it, you know, come talk to me. Um, yeah, I, it's, the, it's the worst, right? Everything, and I, I recognize this is a shallow example, but just stay with me for a second. Everything on that menu, guys, is not worth what they're selling it for you, right? So you walk into Long John, and if you've never been to a Long John, praise God for you. It's a, it's a fast food seafood restaurant, right? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. <clears throat> You walk in, and let's say you walk in, you're like, oh, man, I could get a fish basket for $6, right? No, <laughs> you can. Uh, that is going to cost you, right? <laughs> like, it's going to cost you in every way, right? It's going to cost you. So that $6 that you're going to pay is not worth the benefit that you see. I recognize that's a ridiculous example. Next time you eat Long John Silver's, though, you'll realize, oh, man, this is going to spur me to worship and repentance. <clears throat> I, I don't see properly. I don't believe. I, don't, I doubt God says this isn't worth it. Look where this is going to take you. Look what this is going to do to you. Look at how this is going to affect you. Look at what it's going to cost you. And I say, ah, I know God's kind of given me this economy of what is good and what is better and my design and what I should run towards and what I should run away from. But God, I just, I just doubt that that's really true. And my doubt becomes a catalyst for my pathway towards just being indifferent towards my sin. I doubt he really knows best. Jonah doesn't believe God is doing what's best, right? The Ninevites were awful people, guys. I mean, they were legitimately horrible people. They did horrible things. They were responsible for genocides. And, and, and here, Jonah hears from God that he's going to go preach to them. God, you don't, I don't think you know what you're doing. And that doubt that Jonah has becomes this pathway towards his indifference where he can wind up asleep because of the circumstances of a sin or wrecking the ship, and yet he's asleep because he's so indifferent to it. Let me give you, um, I think this would be interesting. Let me give you a positive, right? Jonah shows doubt. Let me give you a positive of a character in Scripture who nails this. Uh, David, King David, who is a man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, King David is being pursued by Saul. Saul is trying to constantly kill him. Saul is crazy. And King Saul is obsessed with trying to kill David. And David's life is a prisoner of fear, running for his life for a long stretch of time. David and his men go and camp out in this cave, deep in a cave. They're hiding. And coincidentally, 
where through the sovereignty of God, King Saul in chapter 24 decides, I'm going to go and rest in this cave. He has no idea, right? He has no idea that David and his men are hiding in the depths of that cave. And so he goes and takes a nap in the cave that David is in. And David and his men realize it. And they're like, there's the guy who is your mortal enemy, who's trying to kill you, who's created, who's made your life a living hell. This is your chance. This is God's sovereignty. This is your chance to kill Saul and be free of that. And you take the reign. God has already said, you're going to be the king. So this is it. This must be his plan. And David in that chapter says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I believe God has a path. I trust God more than I trust me. He says, no, I'm not supposed to take that into my own hands, so I'm going to trust him. And you see this amazing faith instead of doubt. An amazing faith instead of doubt that that faith helped prevent what would have been disobedience for David. In the New Testament, though, you see someone like Judas who doesn't believe Jesus is who he is. So he betrays Christ. More often than not, I find myself sadly in that boat, in the boat of saying, I don't know that I really trust and believe you are who you say you are, that you know what's best for me. And that gives way to the second kind of path towards how we get, how we become indifferent. And it's doubt and then followed closely by fear. Right, and these go hand in hand so often. But fear is this thing. I mean, Jonah was afraid, right? Not only does he not believe God knows what he's doing to go to the Ninevites, but he's afraid. He's going to get persecuted. He's going to go to a people who have made it their career to, to murder the Hebrew people. And now he is going to go and prophesy and tell them they're worshiping the wrong God. Are you kidding me? The persecution that he's going to face is off the charts. But I'm more afraid of what other people are going to think about me so often that I am this fear of the Lord that God says in his scripture is healthy. This fear and this awe that, that God is more important. I worry way more about what other people think. My accept, if I'm, I'm accepted, if I'm loved, if I'm beloved by other people, their opinions of me matter often so much more to us and it becomes this pathway towards becoming indifferent towards our sin. I can, I can take my sin and I can justify it. And I can all of a sudden say, well, man, my, my fear of what other people might say, what other people might do, my fear of so many man, brothers and sisters I know are in relationships that are so unhealthy because their fear of being alone outweighs being in a really toxic relationship. And so they'll stay in a really toxic, unhealthy relationship because the fear of, yeah, but God, I don't trust that you're going to provide for me. And I'm afraid that if I don't make this work, I'm never going to have another chance. Our fear so often dictates and drives us to indifference. Let me brag on David again, man, as a positive. And he feared the Lord more than he feared Goliath. And as a boy, he goes in front of Goliath, who everyone was scared of, but he had a healthy fear saying, man, I, fear, I, I trust my God. I fear my God more than I fear this massive giant of a man. And God rewarded that, and God showed him victory. Us, our identity is so often shaped by fear of others. Selfishness. 
doubt, fear, selfishness. Man, selfishness, um, selfishness drives us so often. Man. In the garden um, in, in Genesis, whenever Adam and Eve eat the fruit, do you remember what the snake tells them? He says, man, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. If you eat this fruit, you will have the knowledge of good and evil. You will become like God. God doesn't want you to eat it. Satan minimizes the cost of it. It's not that big of a deal. God's just a killjoy. He doesn't want you to experience this. You'll be like God. Man, ever since the garden, all of our root sin goes back to this idea that we want to be God. We want to sit on our throne. We want to worship what we want to worship. We want to enjoy what we, we want to be driven by our own gratification and selfishness drives us and it drives us to become indifferent to our sin. Jonah is selfish and we're going to see that as we get into this book. We're going to see that more and more and more really uh, play out his selfishness uh, in some uh, pretty stark ways. That, that David guy... I was just bragging on as a positive example of his faith as opposed to doubt and his confidence in the Lord as opposed to fear. Um, man, he is driven by his selfishness. Um, when he goes and he pursues this wife who's not his wife, Bathsheba, and he sees this woman bathing and he takes her and he sleeps with her, and he's driven by his own lust, and he's driven by what he wants, and he's driven by this idea that, man, this is what I want, and so I'm going to put aside what God says I should do, and I'm going to pursue what I want to pursue, and sleeps with Bathsheba, and gets her pregnant, and covers it up, and kills her husband, has her husband killed, and buries himself in sin, buries himself in sin, and then becomes indifferent to it, we'll see here in a second, because his selfishness drove him, and then I want to... Um, in this question on this last uh, point, and it's we just become callous because of those things. Our doubt leads to fear. Our fear leads to selfishness, all kinds of roots to this path of how we become indifferent, and then we just end up callous. David, when he repents, right, he, he totally blows it. He, he has a man murdered. He sleeps with this woman, uh, the baby dies uh, that, that he got, that they were pregnant with. I mean, it's this, it's this awful time in King David's life, this man of, of really strong faith up to this point. And when he blows it, and when he realizes it, when the Holy Spirit hits him with conviction, this idea that the Lord will bring our sin before us because he loves us enough, he loves us enough so that we could see it. And when he gets hit with that conviction of realizing this is not right, this is not what I was supposed to do, this is not who I'm supposed to be, and when he gets hit with that conviction, he repents, and he repents in this Psalm 50. And one of the things he says in Psalm 51 is his prayer in his repentance is this. Hear this. He says, would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? David, when he's trying to walk back, walk back out of the indifference that he's buried himself in in his own sin, his prayer becomes, Lord, I have sinned against you and you alone. Would you pure me? Would you purify me? And then he says, man, would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? I grew up in the church, man. I grew up in a Christian home and the whole deal. And I've been on staff and ministries for a long time. Um, and so often my sin 
takes me so far away from that Jesus I knew in those other moments. The intimacy of a father who loves me and is for me. He doesn't create these rules and these boundaries of my sin because he's a killjoy. He creates them because he knows me and he loves me and he knows what's best. Do I believe it? Do I believe he knows what's best? I mean, so often I find myself in these deserts with my heart calloused towards my disobedience because I don't want to see it, because I don't want to look at it, because whatever excuse I want to give myself, and I find myself callous. And so often my prayer is, God, how do I get this callousness away? How do I go back to that joy of my salvation? And if you've put your faith in Christ, if you've been walking with Christ for any period of time, you know what that means. You remember those times in your life and in your walk where you just felt so close to him. Now, when you first, if you've given your life to Christ, when you first got to surrender your life to Christ, not that you earned it, not that you, you realized, okay, I can't earn this. This isn't about religion. This isn't about church. This isn't about being spiritual enough. This is about surrendering to a God who loves me and putting my faith. And you received that Holy Spirit and you received that gift of grace over all of your junk, the sin that you have committed, the sin that was committed against you and you were made new, Man, and you had that joy of your salvation. And there's so many times in my walk, in our walk, where we say, I want back to that place. God, would you heal? Would you break down these calluses so that I might be returned to the joy of my salvation? That's something we need Jesus for. This morning, I am not going to have the words to convince you. But we need the Holy Spirit to move in mighty ways in my life, in our lives. God, would you show us and would you break down those ways? And so to answer the question, how do we cure it? How do we cure it? We wander, we become indifferent to these things that we don't want to, that honestly leave us dry, that leave us empty. We find ourselves asleep in our own sin. How do we cure it? I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, and we'll put it up on the screen for you. <clears throat> Look what Paul, let me give you the context of what's happening in 2 Corinthians 2. The Corinthian church, man, they wandered a ton, man. There was all kinds of sin, and Paul was their pastor and loved them enough to call them out and say, this is going to make you sick. This is going to destroy you. There's going to be massive consequences for this. Walk away from this. Walk away from this sin. And so uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he goes after, lovingly rebukes all these blind spots of the Corinthian church. And then look what Paul has kind of become self-aware of in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says this, starting in verse 8. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. So what he's saying is, hey, look, if my letter calling you out grieved you, oh, man, we got called out, and that is grieving, and, man, Paul is just nailing us in our sin, and this is not fun. And he says, man, even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved 
into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces as Produce, uh, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So here's what Paul's saying. Hey, the fact that I was honest with you, the fact that I honestly talked to you about your sin and made you look at it, held up a mirror so that you saw it, it grieved you, and I don't regret it because the grief was a godly grief. Because it wasn't a worldly grief that just made you feel bad. That's not a godly grief. If you leave this morning and you just feel like, man, I just feel beat up, I just feel shame, shame isn't from Christ. Man, shame isn't from Christ, but conviction is. And so we see our sin and we grieve, but we grieve in this godly way that leads to repentance. So how do we cure the indifference to our sin? We grieve over it. We grieve over our sin. We've got to honestly look at it and say, Lord, this is ugly and this is not from you. If that scares us, if we're afraid to do that, maybe check our hearts. Have we put our security in our holiness, man, I don't bring anything to the table other than my sin anyway. And Jesus meets me at that table and dines with me and loves me and extends his grace. We look at our sin and we grieve over it in a godly way. My hope, and I know this is heavy, but my hope and my prayer all week has been, guys, I hope that the Lord, as he's done in my life and I hope will continue to do in my life, will be so loving to you this morning to meet you in prayer here in just a minute to show you some, some areas that he says, I have something better for you. I have something better for you. And to be able to look at that and to be able to, in a godly way, grieve. Mm, God, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to do. This isn't how I'm supposed to act. That we'd have a godly grief. And then that we would repent from our sin. That we'd repent from it, right? That we would turn from it. That we would that we would look at that sin that grieves us and we would say, Lord, you do have something better and we would turn from that sin. And that God would give us the faith to look at our sin, the confidence to say, all right, Lord, you know better. I trust you more than I trust myself. You know better and that we would be able to turn from our sin. Let me say this too. It's God's kindness in Romans 2 we see that leads us to repentance. And so the grief that God shows us, the conviction that he shows us, the mirror that he shows us, that my prayer is the Holy Spirit says, okay, here's some blind spots, that that conviction then leads to repentance. And I'm not repenting and turning to a God who's like, I told you so. I'm turning to a God who is a father who says, I love you and I have always loved you and come back to me. And man, I've got forgiveness waiting for you, which leads to our last point. Man, you receive it. You receive the freedom and the healing and the grace that God has for you. You look at it. You pray, Lord, reveal in me. You grieve. 
you repent and you receive this forgiveness and this healing and this freedom that God has offered through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then the gospel of Jesus, and if you've never experienced this, if you've never experienced the gospel and truly been saved, if you've been trying to be religious, if you've been trying to tip the scales in your favor and do enough good over bad, that will not be enough. That will not be enough. God says that all have sinned and the wages of sin is death and you won't be able to tip the scales in your favor. The beautiful thing about the gospel is you don't have to. You just have to surrender. You just have to stop striving and trying and say, Lord, I want you over me. I want you over my selfishness. I trust you. I put my my awe in you rather than my fear of what other people think or my status. The gospel, because we had a God who said, they can't make it to me. They're not gonna make it, so I'm gonna go to them. And he sent Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that I deserved, guys, you deserved, to raise again so that those who might put their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone can have salvation and the joy of our salvation. And that gospel isn't just the JV part of our Christianity. It's not just the ABCs of our Christianity. It is the A through Z. That gospel isn't the shallow thing that then we grow. That gospel is the same thing that got me saved, putting my faith in Jesus and not in my own works and not on my own behavior and not on my own striving and surrendering to his grace. That same thing that got me saved is the exact same thing that will sanctify me mature me step by step by step by step so that, Lord willing, I look back 10 years from now and I think, God, thank you for slowly maturing me into this man who gets to experience your joy more and more. And that's the gospel. It is the gospel that is available to everyone. And whether you have never put your faith in Christ, you are here for a reason this morning. Stop running. It is not an accident that you came this morning. And maybe you put your faith in Christ as a little kid and you remember that joy of your salvation, but you have become so callous. It's not an accident that you were here this morning. The Holy Spirit says, I want to remove those shingles of callousness from you and I want to return you to the joy of your salvation. Would you trust that my forgiveness is good enough? Would you look at your sin, turn from it, and experience the freedom of something better? Let's ask the Lord to do that this morning in our life. Only he can do that. Not my words, not songs. Only he can do that. And so I'm gonna now prompt us through a time of prayer. And so here's what this looks like. Go before God. Man, if it's awkward, go before God. Because of the gospel, he does not have his arms folded towards you. Shame is not from him. That's from the enemy. He is a God who, because of Christ, is offering you grace because all your crap, he put on Christ. And so I'm gonna just prompt you in some prayer before him, but you, you follow what the Holy Spirit is, is telling you and leading you in. And God, will we leave changed for the glory of God this morning? Let me pray. Father, thank you for how you love us. Only you can do this, God. Only you can do this. This challenge of the callousness, our lack of faith, our fear, our selfishness. God, we don't want to just get motivated this morning. We don't want to just get inspired and leave here 
inspired and fired up, Lord. We want your Holy Spirit to transform us, God. We know there are blind spots we have, and so, Lord, this morning, would you show them? Would you show them to us? And so um, bring conviction.